Welcome to In Times of Love and Hate, a podcast series from Birkbeck Voices. In this episode, Senior Lecturer in International Relations Dr Antoine Bousquet will discuss the experiences and lessons of war and how these relate to humanitarianism and greater humanitarian efforts. The episodes in this series are brought to you by academics from Birkbeck's MSc War and Humanitarianism, MA Public Histories, BA Human Geography, BA Archaeology and Geography, and BA Intercultural Communication and Language. They will explore with you how the turbulent times we live in can be better understood, lived and survived using the tools of investigation and critical inquiry that students and academics alike employ through study and research at Birkbeck. So many conflicts throughout history have been justified as forces for bringing about greater humanitarianism. Do you believe that war can ever really be a force for humanitarianism and is it ever the best option available? Well, it's true that wars have generally always been uh, justified or legitimated through some appeal to morality or to a greater good. Uh, We're always on the side of the, of the good against the wicked and, and the evil. But I think that there's specificity to our more uh, contemporary times where humanitarianism, human rights has now become the overwhelming justification for war. Um, in the 19th century and throughout the first half of the 20th century at any rate, there was a generally accepted principle in the intercourse of international uh, relations that states could wage war for their n- narrow national interests. and They would generally always wrap it up as well in a kind of moral language, but it was nonetheless an accepted norm of behaviour. That has increasingly disappeared since the Second World War. The United Nations Charter prohibits the kind of aggressive uh, war of national interest that was prevalent before before this. Since the end of the Cold War, we've uh, very much seen interventions being legitimated by uh, the defence of human rights, most notoriously, of course, the case of Kosovo, uh, which set a, sense, a template for humanitarian interventions, subsequently leading to the establishment of a new norm of responsibility to protect, or R2P, which states that uh, governments have a responsibility to act in the case of large-scale human rights violations. This was a principle that was invoked in uh, the case of Libya uh, a few years ago. Now, to answer specifically your question about uh, whether war can be a force for humanitarianism, I think that most people would accept, short of adopting a uh, radical pacifistic position, that there are always going to be occasions where good causes have to be defended uh, by force. And and, uh, people are also prone to uh, criticising governments for inaction. You might think of the case of the Rwandan genocide. But what we've seen, I think, in the last decades or so, is that uh, such interventions are uh, very fraught. They're fraught because they are tied up with national interests, which leads to uh, accusations of inconsistency and discrimination in the types of uh, interventions that are are prosecuted in those that aren't, but also that the outcomes are very checkered, uh, the case of Libya recently in particular. So you spoke a little bit about how human rights and conceptions, modern conceptions of human rights have developed through the devastation of war. Um, could you talk a little bit more about how the world has seen that throughout history? Well, there's always been um, efforts at thinking the ethical and moral problems of war, at framing war uh, in terms of uh, norms of justice. Uh, so th- there's a traditional school of just war thinking, which thinks along two different lines. Uh, you said bellum about the justice in the causes of war. How can the, 
how can you determine whether the reasons for war are justified, and you in bello, which is the rules that uh, govern the justice of your actions in war. Uh, for instance, uh, you know the, the the use of violence that you make, the uh, um, harm that you inflict on civilians, and so on. And this is tradition that uh, goes back to the Middle Ages, has its in, in Europe, and has its um, equivalents in other cultures, such as in Islamic culture. But this has kind of become or taken the shape of the modern laws of war, fed into the modern laws of war as we know them, and that appear in the 19th century, the Hague Convention, the Geneva Convention, uh, that state very clearly that there are uh, norms regarding the treatment of civilians, that there must be a discrimination in the use of force, you must target uh, armed forces and not uh, civilians, and that force has to be proportional to the objectives uh, that you want to attain. And it's quite clear that these efforts at producing law, these norms and these laws is a consequence of uh, moral revulsion at the cost of war as an attempt to bound it. Uh, so I think that many of the ideas of human rights are bound up with uh, the trauma and the devastation of war. With the rise of remote warfare, particularly things like drones where maybe a combatant might never see the people or person that they're fighting or killing, is there a risk of desensitization of the realities of war? I think it's useful to uh, reflect on the wider use of remote warfare uh, when we talk about drone technology, because it is quite common to think of drones as desensitizing, as uh, setting up a technological distance between uh, the the operators and uh, their targets. But when you think back to what remote targeting uh, meant, or aerial targeting meant in the Second World War, uh, or after that, it's people bombing from tens of thousands of feet who have really very little insight as to the consequences of what they're doing. They just drop a bomb and fly off. If you contrast this to the modern drone operator, uh, this is an individual who very often follows this target for hours on end, who peers into the intimacy of their lives, you maybe see the target interacting with his family, his children, and who very often has to linger after uh, the bombs have been dropped. So. In fact, we can talk about a form, a new form of intimacy, technologically assisted intimacy that develops here, uh, and that is quite distinct from a desensitization. In fact, we reports indicate that there are the level of burnout of drone uh, operating crews is very high, and part of that may well be due to the images to which they're exposed. Um, so, I think we always have to be cautious about making very sweeping statements about. Uh, the desensitization that technology produces. It can be used to desensitize. Indeed, it may be that increasingly we'll be delegating decisions to kill to machines, which would be, I think, a form of desensitization or at least an abdication of, abdication of responsibility. But technology can also set up uh, empathy. Uh, distance is not really... Uh, pu uh, distance to the emotional, empathetic distance is not necessarily merely a factor of technology or physical distance. It's a, it's a, it can be a moral distance. Uh, you can view your enemy as subhuman and kill him without any remorse at very close range. Uh, and this, in this regard, I think what has emerged in the past century or so is that we've become more sensitive, I think, to uh, the enemies that we fight in the sense that uh, militaries uh, make great efforts today to at least appear to, to discriminate in targets, to avoid what they call uh, collateral damage, 
And however uh, disingenuous we might want to think these things are or not, uh, the very fact that these efforts are, have to be made is, I think, is, an indica is indicative of a, of a general sensitivity in public opinion that I think is a fairly uh, recent phenomenon. Do you really see that happening? What you said about um, machines being left in charge to decide whether to go um, There's a lot of debates today about the development of autonomous weapon systems that would take entirely autonomous decisions. Uh, I tend to incline that, um, to think that um, there's a bit of hype about this and that we're not about to see fully autonomous machines targeting, making targeting decisions except in very restricted contexts of missile interception and so on. The military itself isn't very keen on that, uh, and the technology probably isn't ready for it. However, I do think that what we're going to find is that uh, increasingly human decision makers are going to be assisted by machines, and that actually the locus of decision making is going to be harder and harder to determine. And I think that will raise uh, difficult ethical issues and also legal issues in the sense that if a weapon system commits a war crime, where does the responsibility lie? Does it lie with the human operator, who may in many cases simply be validating the decisions that are, or the advice that the machine has provided? Is it the software programmer? Is it the manufacturer of the device? Is it the institution? Uh, these questions are, are going to be very difficult to solve, and the current laws of war that we have, I think, are not particularly equipped to deal with it. And finally, how does the experience of war bring out humanity and people in a way that peacetime doesn't necessarily? I think it's important to recognise the deep complexity and ambivalence of the experience of war. Um, of course, war uh, exhibits some of the depth of uh, human behaviour, uh, cruelty and uh, murder, uh, or at least sanctioned murder. Um, but simultaneously, war is a moment in which people have to exhibit tremendous moral qualities. Uh, of courage, of selflessness, uh, people, uh, soldiers experience or tell us about uh, experiences of camaraderie that never leave them for the rest of their lives. And so we experience both, or we witness both the heights and the depths of human experience uh, in war. And I think it's important to recognize that war is a destructive phenomenon, certainly, but it is also. A very powerful creative one. It creates new forms of solidarity, new subjectivities, um, and indeed it may uh, in some cases bring the soldier to see their enemy in a different light to the one that they may have been, the one they may have held to uh, prior to their encounter. Thank you very much. Thank you.